Hey everyone, welcome to Lawyer Up Podcast. This is your host, John Ting. Our next guest is very distinguished. He wears many hats, including being a husband and a parent to two wonderful boys out in New York. He's an author of the book called The Hard Facts About Soft Skills. He is an entrepreneur. He is a criminal defense attorney. He is an adjunct professor. He is also a consultant. One of the things I like about our guest is that he puts kids first. He's had a program specifically for children uh, where they have an opportunity to debate each other in a civil manner, and he started it in New York City. His award-winning program of the Young Debaters Program for students allows students to become more proficient in public speaking skills, enhances their reasoning skills in addition to their communication skills. It's not often that you hear about a program like this. Uh, I know it's been going on since at least 2010. Uh, Ultimately, the core areas of this program provide students an opportunity to think like a lawyer in terms of reasoning skills, how to think critically like a lawyer so they can issue spot and, and problem solve. There's three core areas that he focused on with the Young Debaters program. One is how to critically think like a lawyer, how to critically read like a lawyer, and how to debate persuasively like a lawyer. Especially now in in this time of the politics, this is especially important for the younger generation to understand and learn. Richard is a grant recipient of President Obama's Race to the Top Education Initiative. Uh, That's an amazing achievement. So he's actually spoken at at least over 100 workshops and speaking engagements and over 25 keynote graduation ceremonies. That's quite impressive. And I know this is really through his hard work of of providing an opportunity for students to do better, really focusing on the pipeline to the school. Richard has created a pipeline to uh, education. Uh, This program gives students the opportunity to be empowered. Richard has a book out called The Hard Facts About Soft Skills. Please check it out. I think it'd be beneficial. I'm very proud of his achievements, and I know he has a lot more to accomplish. We'll have website information in the description below about his book and also his Young Debaters program and his consultant company. Without further ado, I'd like you to meet Richard Celestin. You know, if I think if they hear that lawyers are giving back to the community in their own different ways, yeah, then it's encouraging, right? Um, Absolutely. Because other lawyers will say, oh, I'm too busy, whatever. And Hey, Richard, welcome to Lawyer Up Podcast. Thanks for being available today. Hey, John, thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. So for the audience, you're, you're actually in New York City, right? Or is it Queens? Yeah, so I'm based in, right now I'm in Long Island, just moved here a couple of weeks ago, but was born and raised in Queens. And we actually uh, know each other from law school, uh, CUNY Law School, back in the day when it was on Main Street in Flushing, right? Yes, <laughs> a long Good time ago. Back in the old middle school across the street from the cemetery. Oh yeah, that was pleasant. <clears throat> no, definitely. Um, but you, you know, have you have a lot of valuable information to share with the audience here today. You know, on a myriad of topics. But you know, on a timely subject, can we focus right now on your thoughts on the recent um, murders of Black Americans? Um, I know, of course, the first one that we we know recently of is George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And your part of your practice, I think you focus on criminal law, right? Correct. I, I'm a criminal defense attorney. 
So in it, in a way, it's you know I've, I've interviewed a criminal defense attorney earlier in the show, and and it's um, kind of strange, right? Because now the defendant is a police officer, mm-hmm. and even though the general sentiment is that you know of course cops should be you know reprimanded, not just reprimanded, but fired and also charged and eventually convicted. But at the same time, at the end of the day, inspective, you're a criminal defense attorney. Mm-hmm. So if we can talk, I mean, we could talk about the George Floyd case, or it could be, you know, um, Ahmad, um, I'm sorry, Az- in Atlanta. There's so yeah. many, unfortunately, that intern- I'm getting their first and last names confused, but the uh, Mr. Brooks in Atlanta, mm-hmm. the Wendy's, or um, Ahmad in, uh, in um, Georgia, right? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the truth is, it's and and it's kind of I don't fault you for getting the name mixed up, and it's I think that kind of hints at the the sadness of the whole situation because coming up with a list of names like it's kind of sad when you think back to scenarios and you're trying to think of the name of the person and you're like, oh wait, no, that was a different person that was killed, and what about oh no, that was a different. It, it's 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 so overwhelming to try to remember you know, all these details when there's been so many unfortunate incidents, you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of sad, you know? Yeah, it is sad. You know, I, yeah, Ahmad Arbery. Um, I think that was in, in, yeah, that was in Georgia as well. So, as long as it was Mr. Brooks, but it, it is sad because I know some people in general, they want to look at the very details of facts and they're quick to it. Right. Because of course, some of us come to conclusions sooner than later, Mm-hmm. But um, that's not the point at the end of the day. It's the fact that we have to, that's a concern mm-hmm. since at least, I mean, decades ago, hundreds of years ago, but more recently, the last since at least 2014 with, uh, I think it was Michael Brown, St. Louis. Yeah. Um, and I even personally for me, I remember the, the gentleman from New York City. Uh, shoot. Again, I can't remember the name, but I remember right before going to law school, I think he had just got murdered by a, detectives mm. that were at a club and you probably may remember his name but when it comes was it to sean bell that's right sean bell okay um so i mean every scenario seems slightly different in the facts right and people try to figure yeah. out was that person provoked i mean I, I don't really don't think that should be part of the discussion what are your thoughts on that <clears throat> well you know what i've i've um I've been labeled as being anti-police, unfortunate, which, which I'm not, I don't like that title. I don't consider myself someone who's anti-police. I, anybody who wakes up in the morning and puts their life on the line to go out and protect people that they don't know, to me is a hero. There's no question about it. Right. But I also think that when we evaluate almost any other profession, there shouldn't be any exception. Meaning, um, bad doctors should be reprimanded and or fired. Bad lawyers should be reprimanded and or fired. Bad police officers should be reprimanded and or fired. And in all of those professions, including lawyers, that the job in and of itself is very challenging and difficult. And as much research that I can do, it's a very different thing to be in that particular role and, and to be doing the work. So that's, that's certainly granted. But at the same time, there, there has to be some type of questioning in terms of what is the level of training um, what is the level of education that these individuals are getting? How comfortable are they working within these communities? How connected are they within these communities? Um, what level of fear are they bringing into the workplace? Because that obviously affects 
when they're placed in a situation and they automatically assume that their life is at risk as opposed to engaging in a typical conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of different kind of factors that come into play, but I think that it's, it's incredibly important for us to understand that, that there has to be standards set and there has to be um, protocols that are set and there has to be consequences set the same way that it would be in any other profession the same thing needs to apply to police. And by saying and by saying that and believing that, it doesn't make me anti-police any more than it would be if I say if an attorney somehow, you know, misrepresents their client or or illegally takes their funds or whatever it is that they should be reprimanded to the bar. It doesn't make me anti-lawyer. It just means that as a professional, I want to make sure that we're held right. to that standard because you represent me. The same way as any right. officer could sit down and say that that unfortunate officer that that killed George Floyd, he's a representation of of every good officer as well as every bad officer as well. You know, that's interesting. Interesting you say that because um, as both of us are attorneys, you're in New York, I'm in Texas, and we each state has their own code. And there's mm -hmm. also the American Bar Association Ethics Code. And I feel like we, uh, on a day-to-day -day daily practice, we encounter ethical considerations. And, mm -hmm. you know, at least in Texas, I'm sure in New York, there's a hotline to call in in case you think uh, something could be unethical. So, you know, if police officers have some kind of resources, I know people can say like, oh, well, there's not enough training or whatnot. Well, mm -hmm. it's not just the day-to-day -day training, right? There has to be resources in general. Absolutely. Uh, so that officers can feel more comfortable in um, you know, making that real life scenario decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, for us, right. We're not police officers. I don't, I don't think you have law enforcement background, right? No, I don't. But in your, in your um, practice, you're a criminal defense attorney. So I'm sure you've interviewed or you're deposed or, uh, you know, put cops on the stand and, you know, you have experience in that way. I mean, not mm -hmm. to say you have that real life scenario, like what would you do? And, and any of those three recent, um, situations, but um, mm -hmm. you know, we you have a better understanding than me because I don't practice criminal law. How cops behave mm -hmm. and the culture, mm -hmm. and so I think you know, just like lawyers and tech. I mean, we have a lot of different Facebook groups for lawyers. Of course, it's for us not just to ask advice from each other, but to feel that really to that we have comfort in making sure that we're doing right by our client. Absolutely. And, we have a high standard, um, you know, I've, we can receive complaints from clients or non-clients. So mm -hmm. why can't police officers have the same professional high standard to the public? Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I just wanted to share that. <clears throat> Absolutely. No, and I 100% agree with you where I tell a lot of young people how incredibly challenging it is to become a lawyer, but also how easy it is to lose your license to practice law. Um, and I think that it's, it's kind of a scary thing, but you know, when you, when we look at police officers and we look at the culture, unfortunately that exists, I am a firm believer that there are a lot of amazing individuals who are police officers, but unfortunately based on the culture and this whole concept of like the brotherhood and respecting the line, individuals are afraid to step up and to report that negative behavior. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the reason why there's a lot of people that believe that there's no such thing as a good police officer, because if you're a, an officer that witnesses negative behavior and don't report it, then what makes you any better than that person, right? Mm 
Right. Um, but I think that if we, as you mentioned, if you if we set up the resources, if you allow a safe place for individuals, for police officers to hold other officers accountable, um, then you, that's how you gain the respect within the communities. That's how you gain respect within the profession. And then it's also how you weed out individuals that abuse their power and, and take advantage so that way you're saving lives like we could have in, in, in many of these instances. Right. And, and it, you know, on a superficial level, in a way that there is an inspector general, right? Each city police department has that, but I, you're right. Like if more people talk about it, make it more, people have more awareness about it. You know, if they mention it in their initial training in their mm -hmm. academy uh, to keep each other accountable, you know, I think uh, when work is here that then they feel more welcome, at least to start with. Uh, so, um, but in, if I could get your opinion mm -hmm. on, you know, let's say, if you were to represent one of these police officers, you could pick any of the stories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is your, because part you know, this question is really for the less experienced and younger lawyers, you know, because at the end of the day, these are, despite the profession, this is a defendant, right? Yes. And you're the lawyer. Yes. So, and there's a lot of media circling, right? Mm -hmm. How would you control the, the space in terms of um, all the noise, you know, and focus on the case? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a challenging situation for any defense attorney to be in. Um, I think that, you know, and I keep mentioning kids because I do so much work with the kids, which I'm sure we'll touch base on. But one, when I when I do career days, I think one of the more I get the two typical questions that I get asked most frequently is how much money do you make? And the yep. second is, how do you represent somebody who, you know, did something very bad or is you who was basically told you that they're guilty? And it's a, it's a difficult situation to be in, but it's one of those things that regardless of what a person is accused of, it's still an accusation, and the person is still entitled to a defense. Now, obviously, with a high-profile case such as this, where it's already a challenge to get jurors that are unbiased, mm -hmm. um, it's going to be difficult to get a fair shake within the media, it's going to be difficult based on political pressure, right, across the board, right, because mm -hmm. there's you know, the fear and concern that if there is some, is not some type of like severe conviction and with, with prison time attached to it, that we could see a resurgence of like the rioting and the looting and so on and so forth. And then at the same time, if the charges are dropped or if there is no conviction or anything like that, you fear that initial fear as well, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of balancing all of that is, is incredibly challenging. And knowing that you're sitting down and playing the role of defending somebody who um they has already been essentially by well part of society has convicted him and the other part of society is being very um sympathetic to him you have to kind of ignore all of that and and focus on the facts focus on the details do the investigation interview people um obviously when you have stuff like video and testimony it makes a defense attorney's job significantly more difficult um but all, but not impossible and, and it also changes the scope a little bit because it's kind of hard to argue that it wasn't him. It's kind of hard to argue that he didn't, you know, kneel with his the knee in the back of the head. It's kind of hard to argue that the time frame because it was eight minutes and 46 seconds, which is anybody can sit down and create, get a stopwatch and time it. So there's certain things that are there that would make any defense attorney's job incredibly difficult. But if you ask me like, what would be my defense if I was representing him? Sure. To be honest with you, 
I don't know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would have to learn more of the behind the scenes details, which maybe we may not be privy to based on right. what's being presented in the media in order to come up with a defense. Uh, it's very challenging because it doesn't look good. For the other officers that were standing there, I think there may be a little bit more of a defense because maybe they didn't know how much pressure, they didn't know what he was doing, they weren't paying attention, they were crowd control, so they weren't looking at what's going on. So like, right. I think coming up with an argument for them might be a little different, but for the actual officer with the knee in the back of the neck, right? I don't, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I think I heard for that case, for the former officer Chauvin, or defendant Chauvin now, he, uh, I think there was consideration of a plea deal before, before the charge was even assessed mm. for the public to know at least. So the fact that that was happening, that conversation was happening, we, we, he already knows he's guilty because of course he, um, I mean, a good amount, I mean, there's a presumption of innocence, but a good amount of yes. people know they're guilty, but I don't practice criminal law, but I've told when I share with talk to friends, it's really not so much, like you said, when you talk to young students, it's about making sure they have that due process, you know, mm -hmm. and making sure the, the prosecution does their job correctly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the, so you've, you've created a nonprofit, the Young Debaters Program, right? Is that the name of it? Yes. Well, so I have, it's actually an LLC. I have a okay. Richard Celestin Consulting Group LLC. And what's interesting is that that name doesn't cut, that name's usually associated with like invoicing and stuff like that, the behind right. the scenes stuff. And I'm typically known as, uh, or refer, my, my organization is typically referred to as the Young Debaters Program, right? And uh, so that's, that's a program that I created, wow, going back to 2009 now. Um, right, so actually, now that you say 2009, then I was one of the early judges. And I, yes. I, I can say oh, yeah. I, I had a pleasant experience I thought it was very valuable, not just to me, but um, to the students as well. I mean, most people think that, you know, for younger lawyers thinking about um, volunteering, I mean, it's definitely a lot of impact for ourselves as well mm -hmm. and giving back. But yes, please share, share, if you don't mind sharing first how you came up with the idea and what propelled you to do this. Sure. So I originally came up with the idea because I realized just personally that I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer since I was a little kid. Um, but whether it was my lack of interest or motivation or just lack of opportunities, I really wasn't given an opportunity to really learn about what lawyers did until law school. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I wanted to do was taking into account my own personal experience, plus the fact that I think that the profession of lawyers is just so incredibly interesting, which is why there are like so many shows and documentaries and movies that are made based on the profession. I wanted to teach students kind of like the fundamentals of what it took to be a lawyer and kind of open up the door to some of those skills and some of those ideas and some of those concepts to not only nurture their idea of debate and advocacy and critical thinking, but to also present the idea of, you know what, maybe becoming a lawyer is something that you actually would consider becoming when you grow up and not just sit down and watch it on TV. Mm -hmm. And so I created the program before I even had in, uh, the foundation, before I even had the LLC. And I approached my first elementary school in 2009. And I was super nervous, met with the principal. I think I gave like, like the greatest pitch I've ever given in my entire life for anything. And the one thing that I didn't expect, which is kind of crazy, is the principal was just like, okay, I want it. How much? 
And I wasn't prepared for that. So I came up with like a random number and she jumped on it. And of course I was like, damn, could I have said like a different number? And she would have taken it. Um, but then she was, but then she started asking those logistical questions like, well, do you have a vendor identification number? And what about invoicing all this other stuff? And so I was like, oh man. So I had to scrabble, scramble to create the LLC. And then right. once I had the LLC, then the program was there and copywriting. And uh, that one school turned into two schools that year, which has now turned into close to 50 schools over the wow. course of the last 10 years. Wow. Well, well, congratulations on that achievement. I know you have more to do for that, really to help with the also, I mean, you mentioned all the specific uh, skill sets, right? Mm -hmm. But in a way, if you look at a broader spectrum, it provides a lot of confidence to oh, yeah. these young students, right? Generally speaking, and, you know, with everyday life, it can be really... I mean, I don't remember watching the news that much as a kid, but these days it seems like it's all, the TV is always on. Yeah. And um, just having the kids focus on something like this, giving something more productive is uh, really a boost. So thank you for doing that for your community. And it's um, my pleasure. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't ask you separately, but is this something you're considering to, now we're talking a little bit more of the business operations. Mm -hmm. Have you considered making, creating different chapters in other cities? Yeah, so it's it's actually kind of interesting. Um, I created this program and it's really been limited as a result of my availability because I'm a one person show right now. And so in all the schools that it's being done, I'm either the one teaching it there or I'm the one going and training the teachers and then coordinating all the competitions. And in the back of my head, I've always kind of had the idea of like, well, how can I expand? How can I make this nationwide, potentially like, you know, worldwide, right? And I always was trying to think of different ways. And this is why as horrific and as um, devastating as just, you know, the whole COVID-19 pandemic has been, there's also been glimmers of like silver lining, right? And I think it's a very personal thing in terms of what that looks like. And for me, like that glimmer of silver lining was developing this online virtual program that I'm gonna be doing over the summer and then also connecting with people to figure out how to take my entire program and transition it into an online class that now can be offered in any school throughout basically the entire world. And so now I'm definitely working towards doing that. And the goal is by January of 2021 to have a both a physical version as well as having an online version that can basically be done anywhere. Hmm, right. Yeah. Now that, uh, cause I, I was going to say, I could probably connect you of course in Texas, to some attorneys that would want, love to do this Beautiful. because we have a lot of mock trials at least for the college level or law yeah. student level and uh but anyway yeah i mean i think yeah it is a silver lining because it gives you more more time to think about your your plan essentially i like that idea so we'll talk more about that uh, next time but um you know you have i'd like to do a little plug for you and you have you're an author now as well um mm -hmm the hard facts about soft skills. Yes. You, um, without giving away the book, but it seems like your experience with the Young Debaters program transitioned you to be an author, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's one, I never thought I would become an author, never really envisioned that. And I think that in developing my Young Debaters program, what it also did is it opened the opportunity for me to do a lot of workshops in schools, whether it was talking about the law or talking about skill development or doing workshops to support parents. And in doing all of that and having these conversations, I, I realized that I was sharing a lot of little nuggets about 
what helped me get to the position that I was in and what helped me to develop this program and to, to reach some level of success. And it wasn't until one particular workshop that I did that someone mentioned, well, oh, those are like really key soft skills. And that was the first time that I honestly ever really heard of that. Mm -hmm. And when I started to research it and understand it, I realized that the foundation for my success, the foundation for where I am today was really built on my social soft skills as opposed to the academic piece. Like I'm, you know, obviously I have the academic credentials and the diploma and stuff, but I never was a fan of school, never liked school. Um, But I was very good at talking to people and interacting with people and navigating relationships and so on and so forth. And so I decided that the easiest way to become an author was to write about something that was just so personal that it would just naturally flow. And so I created this book and focusing on the really key soft skills areas that I feel are not being currently taught in schools, but are Mm -hmm. absolutely essential for any single person, regardless of what profession they go into, they're critical for success. They're critical for developing networks um, and kind of navigating any type of relationship to kind of reach whatever goals or aspirations you set for yourself. No, that's wonderful. I mean, I remember when you were first talking about it, so I'm glad that you followed through. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, it's a lot of, you're right, it's, it definitely is foundational that, um, that people, you know, we normally just don't think about it. We're just, it's our personality, right? So we don't think about uh, what has elevated our success. So that's great that you put it in writing. Yeah. And in terms of, so I believe we can find that on Amazon, right? Is there anywhere else that people could buy it or just? Well, see? currently, yeah, it's, only, it's right now it's only available on, on Amazon. Um, and then I, you know, obviously whenever I do any type of speaking engagements, I always have copies of my book with me. But uh, if anybody wants to purchase it, it is available on Amazon. Okay, great. Great. Um, so that is, for everyone, that's called the Hard Facts about soft skill success. Um, let's see. So, um, you know, going back to, if we can go back to the, uh, your criminal defense perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a movement called defund the police. Now, my perspective real quick is that it doesn't always, not for every city department, police department literally means defund the police in terms of scrapping the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and my understanding is that if it does literally mean that, that's because it's in those union states where it's hard to reorganize or fire police officers. And I believe Minnesota is one of them. Can you touch on that? And the, if, if you understand that correctly? Yeah, sure. So it, it's funny because this whole concept of defund the police is, it seems like it, it's, it has so many different meanings, I guess, depending on who you ultimately talk right. to. Um, my perspective in terms of defund the police is like, I, I would never, I'm not a fan of the idea of saying, well, let's get rid of all police everywhere and let's just kind of like live. Like, I don't think that's going to necessarily work. Um, on the flip side, I am a firm believer of getting to the root of what the problem is and addressing what the problem is, right? So if, if, okay. if there's a leaky pipe, or if there's a leak in your ceiling and you just kind of put a Band-Aid on it, you've temporarily addressed the issue, but you're still going to have that leak. And with defund the police, the way that I look at it at is, you know, we have this increase in terms of um, arrest and incarceration of people of color. We have these instances of police brutality. And so getting to the core of what exactly is the problem means that we have to look at where the funds going, 
based on the city and the state, and what can we do to get to the core of what the problem is, right? And mm -hmm. so I know that what's going on in New York is that Mayor de Blasio is talking about taking money away from the police. I think the number was like 1.5 billion or something like that, but then taking it and using it towards youth programs, right? And using it towards housing and using it towards all these social service support. Mm -hmm. And when you sit down and you think about it, when you look at the statistics, then the numbers dictate that between the ages of, I think, 16 and 24, that's the highest risk population for arrest. And when you get to, if you speak to somebody that does the work, they'll tell you that it's a, because there's a lot, a lot of lack of, you know, programming and education and support uh, for those individuals that are not on a traditional school path and want you know other avenues and getting jobs and training and so on and so forth so if we really focus the money on the root of who's the most at risk and we empower them and educate them and provide them with the skills those individuals are going to ultimately grow up and avoid arrest right mm -hmm. so that i think when i look at defund the police i see it more as a reallocation of resources to address the core of the issue and to start doing preventative work as opposed to having money that's there for to increase or to create additional issues in terms of arrest and incarceration. That's true. And to look at it in my perspective in terms of the budget, some cities have a, a balanced budget. So if there's $100, you have to literally use all $100. Otherwise, it's quote unquote going to waste. Yes. So many departments have that mentality. So if people in the audience look at a city budget, just because it ends up being zero at the end of fiscal year doesn't mean they had to use every dollar. So I think mm -hmm. if people have the understanding of reallocation, that'd be, that'd be better. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. And you know, there's been, you know, Netflix of course has a lot of shows lately and uh, Amazon prime to showcase uh, African-Americans mm -hmm. and, but uh, specifically the militarization of police. Um, the one I can think of right now is from the nineties. Uh, I think it was called Waco yeah. or they called it Waco. But, um, I, you know, actually when I was a kid, I remember hearing about that. Of course I couldn't comprehend fully, but now that after watching it again, it, it seems even though the people involved in that, that religious group, uh, were mostly Caucasian, but yeah. it, it seems a similar concept going on now where there's a militarization of police. And there's no, there's no fine line, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like when you think about it, we're creating a line of Robocops, right? Mm -hmm. And with you, so I know that I may be dating myself for people like Robocop, what's that? But you know, like when you, when you have like this, when you create a police force that has, there's a certain level of disconnection with kind of human interaction, like it's a human resources position. Right. And any human resources position, the key to it is being able to interact and deal with humans. And there, when you're dealing with humans, there is no such thing as a copy and paste or one size fits all approach towards everything. You can't do it. As attorneys, we both know I can get a phone call from one client that I'll say, hey, what's going on? And they'll give me their entire life story. And I have another one that will give me like three words. And I got to have to ask a billion questions in order to get it out. Right. Like you have to be able to kind of adapt in those situations and, and having kind of like a robotic or having like, well, this is the standard uniform and this is what you, it doesn't work that way when you're dealing with people. Like it has to be fluid, you know? Right, right. 
yeah, everyone, every situation is different. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I know you're talking about the, about the two different spec, the spectrum of personalities. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, yes, you know, in terms of yeah, that when you were saying robotic, I was thinking of that that video clip where I think it was Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. where the those cops where they all resigned essentially from that that section or whatnot, that force, special force. Uh, where they pushed the Caucasian man. Oh, the older guy, right? I think it was like, yeah, a much older gentleman. And yeah. uh, he started bleeding. And it, and and one of the police officers, it looked like he was actually concerned. But then someone, another cop behind him just pushed him away. Like, just forget yeah. it. Keep going. So it's very sad to see that. Yeah. Um, like you said, like the fraternity, you know, the culture. So definitely something hasn't changed on that. But, there you was, know. There was going, another video. There was another video that actually showed... Um, there was a woman who was kneeling and she was protesting and there was uh, a Caucasian officer that walked by a woman and she literally was just sitting there. She was on her knees and he walked by her and just shoved her. And then another police officer, which was an African-American woman, then shoved that police officer and was like, you know, obviously didn't hear what was going on, but you could tell like she was very upset at the fact that what was the need for you to turn around and push that? that stuff like that is what right it's necessary we need we need police officers policing each other as well right, right and ensuring right. like your your responsibility is to serve and protect like you have to serve and protect and if you're not serving and protecting the same way that you're not practicing law the right way or you are taking advantage of patients or you are being inappropriate with a student there should, you, there, there should be individuals to step up and say, hey, listen, that's not how we do the job. You're misrepresenting the position and you're making us all look bad, right? Right, right. I mean, uh, I didn't see that clip. There's just so many, for mm-hmm. sure. Very unfortunate situation. But you would think there's opportunity for a police departments in general to be have stronger leaders. Uh, I know there's, um, uh, I think it was Wilmington, North Carolina, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new chief who happens to be African-American. I don't want people thinking just because you're a, they're a black police officer that, you know, they're a good cop, right? It's, okay. it doesn't matter the color or skin color. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was him actually that said, it depends on your heart, the color of your heart. It's not about your color of skin actually. So that's yeah. very commendable for him to say that. Um, but he, he uh, I don't know if you heard that story, but I think it was just last week where three Caucasian officers, white officers, were talking in their car or something or they were actually being recorded they clearly didn't know they were mm-hmm. but uh they said that they they called some people the n-word and were going to start some kind of civil war so mm-hmm. that came out by i think a let me call it auditor like the ig inspector general office but he made a he made a uh, reasonable and intelligent decision to fire all three of them even though you know they did admit to it and they were trying to resign but that sent a clear signal that, you know, they're not just going to turn a blind eye anymore in situations like this. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm sorry, I kind of went off track there. Mm-hmm. But in terms of your, your practice area as a practitioner and attorney, do you think you have some kind of influence? I wouldn't call it power, but, you know, clients trust us to do the best job that we can. And mm-hmm. we're part we're part of the system, essentially. We're trying to do what we can to help them exercise and utilize their due process rights. But in your perspective of criminal defense attorney, do you feel that you've been able to do that on a day-to-day basis? I know those are tough 
question, uh, but, uh, and it's not like a straight answer, right? But, yeah. you know, just for those who are just getting out of law school and trying to find ways in this movement to help, you know? Yeah, no, there's, I, I think that there's, it's an uphill battle, there's no question, but it's, a, it's really about just trying to do the best that we can with every individual that we work with. And I think a large part of it is ensuring that they understand what their rights are so that way we can also discuss where their rights may have been violated. Um, it's about understanding what the, what the laws are and, and why and how they were arrested and charged with that particular crime. It's about breaking down how the system works and how, you know, it's, it's, it's a frustrating thing because I hear so many clients tell me the system's broken, the system's broken, when the truth is that the system is actually functioning perfectly. It's functioning the way that it was designed to, to, to function and our responsibility is to break it, right? And mm -hmm. so, I, you know, explaining all of that and, and also, also, you know, it's, which is, is challenging, but also explaining how unfair and biased the system is as well, right? And how we're unfortunately, you know, as, the, as defense attorneys, we're kind of in like this plea machine where everybody's kind of like pleading to the charge, pleading to the charge, pleading to the charge. And there's obviously a lot of factors that are involved in terms of why individuals plea from their personal perspective. Um, and then also just the pressures that are placed on defense attorneys as well. And so it's really kind of an unfair system. And um, so we, we can only do what we can under the circumstances. And it's really about empowering them with, their, with, their, with, their, with knowledge and information and making sure that they're fully aware of everything that's going on within the, their process from getting all of their paperwork, understanding what's going on, explaining the procedures, thoroughly going through what their options are, what the consequences would potentially be. Um, all of that stuff that we learn in law school, mm -hmm. it, it, there's a tremendous pressure to kind of move away from that because we're, we don't do that and this is how it works. And you know, you have like an older jaded attorney that says, no, 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 this is not what we do. You, it go, you have to resist that as much as you can. And once you start finding yourself doing that, that's when it's time to quit, right? That's when it's time to find another profession. Right. No, that's true. I mean, I'm sure the, the older generation, more experienced, they have their own, they're hard in their own set ways. And um, uh, not to try to call out any specific attorney, of course, but I, I've heard of stories where, let's say I would be the second or third lawyer where the first lawyer definitely messed up. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I asked the client, you know, did you ask these questions? And some people don't ask. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we have to provide the knowledge, even if they don't ask, because yeah. we, we it sounds like we're on the same boat, you know, in terms of the same page on that, that we want to make sure that they're empowered mm -hmm. and uh, they can make an educated decision on their options. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you and I can go on for stories on clients yeah. that uh, need this kind of assistance. Uh, because, and, and, you know, in law, nothing is common sense, right? I mean, there is a code, you know, the legal code in the book, but uh, our clients don't understand the code. I mean, in fact, lawyers have to read the code every day, right? Absolutely. So, in case law. Um, let's see here. So for those who are thinking about just transitioning a little more, for those thinking about uh, opening their own law practice or transition to open their law, own law practice from a big firm, you know, how can you share a little bit about uh, how you, uh, you know, how people find out about you? You know, because most people think like I need to put something in the yellow pages yeah. or something like that. So I have um, 
it's kind of a unique approach towards, towards how I operate as a solo practicing attorney. And I think it's based on two different things. The first thing is that I don't solely practice, right? Which means that the need for me to get clients on a consistent basis, that pressure is not there because, you know, I do so many other things, but I get to still, I have like, you know, that 35 to 40% of that allotted time goes towards practice. Um, so that's one aspect that changes it. The other aspect is I work a little differently in the sense, and, and I think that it keeps, it, it mandates that I ensure that I am providing the best possible legal represent, representation that I can. Mm -hmm. I don't advertise anywhere, right? Outside of having a Google page, I don't advertise. I don't have anything in the yellow pages. As many times as people say, oh, I've seen you in a commercial. I've never had a commercial, right? Like I've never done anything like that. Yeah. I can honestly tell you that a great majority of the clients that I get are all through word of mouth. And the reason why I prefer to operate like that is because I handle every single one of my clients with such a high level of respect and responsibility that they then become walking business cards. And so when someone calls me completely out of the blue and is like, hey, listen, um, I'm calling you because I heard you're a great attorney. And I'm like, well, okay, well, where'd you hear that from? And they're like, well, so-and-so told me that is kind of like an affirmation that I provided adequate legal representation to that person, so much so to the point where they trusted me to refer me to someone else, right? So that's definitely at the core of how I do it. And it's also what prevents me from getting jaded, taking shortcuts or anything like that, because I know that each potential client with that mentality of like their potential walking um, business card, if I, if I pour my energy into them and do everything I possibly can, that is how I'm going to continue my business and continue to be successful and, and continue to help people. That's, that's very, uh, absolutely. That's a good point. I mean, at least for me, most of my business is word of mouth as well mm. through mostly through past clients. And uh, it's important. And for other attorneys listening, I mean, it's not just actual paying clients. It's also before they even decide to sign a contract with you. It's when they walk in your door or on a video conference, it's how that you treat them. Mm-hmm because then they're going to feel more comfortable with you. And oftentimes I, I tell a potential client, you know, there's thousands of lawyers, you know, depending on practice area, right? But you have the option to choose. You are the client, you know, you need to pick who you're comfortable with in terms of not just personality, but communication wise, because some, as you know, some clients want more communication than others. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, uh, that's a good point that you, you made Richard, because um, I think oftentimes people who are, wanting or considering to open up their own shop as a solo practitioner, they feel that pressure to take on too many clients yeah. and they know that, right? I had that feeling for also in the first year, but, um, I, I've been fortunate to receive advice from mentors that said, you know, take on here and there. And then sooner or later that the other cases will trickle in and it surely has happened for me. And, and it sounds like it has for you. I can honestly tell you, and, and I'm going to try to put a number to it, but it's, it's kind of difficult, but I would honestly say maybe like one in four, one in five clients that actually, or potential clients, I should say that contact me. Typically when I ask them that, cause I, I always like to know, right. They have right. their court appointed attorney and then they contact me. And I am also not the type of person that's going to badmouth court appointed attorneys because sure. they're, you know, like we said, in every profession, there's good and bad. Right? Right, right. And they're doing a thankless job. Honestly, oh, they have a lot of cases, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Right. So I would always ask the person, well, 
So you have this attorney. Why are you contacting me as a private attorney? Why are you willing to pay money to have me represent you when you have someone that's court appointed? And I can honestly tell you that a lot of the time, what it is, is they would explain stuff like, well, they were rude to me on the phone. Mm -hmm. They hung up on me. They, I asked for my paperwork and they said, no. I asked them to explain the charges and he said, don't worry about it, I got it. Like all these little things that have to do with just basic interpersonal skills. Right. And when they call me, it's kind of like, well, okay, I can understand that. And I'll have a quick conversation with them because I'm, you know, like I just, like the way that we're talking, I'll have a conversation with them and I'll spend like half an hour doing a consult with them and then they'll know more about their case than they did beforehand. And wow. then they're like, well, how much? Where do I sign? Like, what do I got to do? And it's just based on just talking to them right. with a level of respect and understanding, especially in the work that I do. Nobody's calling me because they're in an amazing position. Hey, I got arrested. This is awesome. Fantastic. Right. right. right? Everyone yeah. is calling me in a difficult situation. So knowing that that is the situation, I have to talk to them and approach them in a way that shows empathy and shows care and shows respect for their situation. Otherwise, they're already frustrated. They're going to get more frustrated and that nothing right. Out of that no those those are really good points um respect yeah that's number one for mm -hmm. sure um and i think some lawyers often forget that right because you know they have a certain caseload and they they just take um uh, take it for granted for sure yeah um, you know especially those lawyers that already have they could be a higher profile attorney their name and you know they just yeah anyways the uh, thank you for sharing that um so if you look back, let's say, before you started your practice, you know, you're in third year, 3L, and you know that you're considering to open up your own shop, what advice would you give yourself now that you, or back then that you know now? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I definitely think that it's important to connect yourself with people that are, that can serve as mentors, as you mentioned. Um, because the truth is that, especially when you start going into private practice, you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to know all the procedures. You're not going to know all the paperwork. You're not going to know the contacts, the people to connect with, so on and so forth. So I think developing a network of trusted individuals that you can reach out to and say, hey, listen, I have this case. I want to run this argument by you. Or, hey, listen, um, I'm dealing with this district attorney. Like, have you worked with them? Or, you know what I mean? Like any one of those situations. So developing a solid safety net is incredibly important. And I think that that's one of the things that I think initially coming out of law school, that it took a little bit of time for me to kind of develop because I interacted with people and everything was cool, but it wasn't really doing it with the intention of saying, well, hey, listen, do you want to be like, can I, you, you want to be in the Rolodex, like in case I need you for so on and so forth. Um, it was just generally like, hey, yeah, sure, I'll help you. And then like, that's kind of like the end of it. But it's about developing those relationships, nurturing them, having them as resources um, mm -hmm. and going. And then again, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's, I get the need financially to kind of like try to get as many clients and try to blow up as much as possible. So I would always tell people like, try to balance it, even if an initial practice do something else that brings you some source of steady income while you develop your practice and focus on quantity over quality, right? If you have a hundred cases and you burn 80 of your clients, that's not a good success rate, right? Mm -hmm. If you have 20 clients and you do amazing by those 20 clients, those 20 clients will bring you a hundred more, right? Right. No, that's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, I try to think of it like the healthcare field mm -hmm. uh, in terms of like 
you want the best patient outcome. That's it. You know, because they're you know, because usually when people go into or a patient goes in the hospital, they already have so many different complications, and and it's, I think it's similar to law that there's so many different facts. Not mm -hmm. every case is the same. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's that's a really good point there, Richard. Um, you know, I see some trophies back there on your shelf. Uh -huh. Is that some of the young debaters? Or is that for yourself? So it's actually a mix. Um, I have I have a couple of my young debaters trophies that I like to bring into schools and and kind of show off um, so that way students know like what they're competing for for the competitions. But then I also I used to compete. Uh, I used to play pool on a competitive level in different leagues and stuff like that. And so I've won a couple of trophies through playing pool. So they're also on display back there as well. All right. Wouldn't you call yourself like a pool shark? I remember you brought your own, um, <laughs> your own cue. Yeah. Once you start walking into a pool hall with your own cue, like there's no more shark. Like people say like, oh, look, this guy has his own cue. So that's it. Um, and in plus the places that I go to to play, like, you know, a lot of people know me, so they know that, you know, they know who I am. I haven't played, it's, I haven't played in a few years. So maybe if I go back, like maybe I can kind of sneak in there and, 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 and try to see if I can figure out something. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a little rusty right now, but yeah, the, the whole shark thing I think is, is, I think that's uh -huh. out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, well, uh, you didn't allude to this, but you know, you're not blaming your two children, right? For the lack of time in the pool hall. No, 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 not at all. No. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, how do you put it? Um, like when you invest and you start doing something, like when I was started playing pool, I was, you know, I was learning all the tricks. I was getting the books. I was reading, I was watching the videos. I was spending an extensive amount of money on accessories and stuff like that. And then you kind of reach this point, right? where you say to yourself, like, I am going to take this really seriously and start competing more and go on the pro level and da, 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 whatever. Right. Or you're going to realize like, you know what, I've done all of this stuff, but at the end of the day, this is a hobby. Like I can't invest any more time and energy unless I know right, I'm right. for it. And so I reached that point and I was just kind of like, this is something I did for fun. I'm not going to start sacrificing work or my weekends or anything like that to start doing it. And so that's when I kind of took a, a step back. Right. Well, I think if you answer my next question is, you know, how do you balance your time? Yeah. You know, doing, being an author, the young debaters program, and, you know, of course being a parent and a husband, I mean, yeah. and running your own practice. That, that's a lot of hats there, Richard. Yeah. Uh, no, I applaud it's, you for that. It's funny. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's, um, I actually, I had a, when, you know, I get asked whenever I, you know, I do my introduction, right? And they're like, what are your titles? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm an author. I'm an, uh, an attorney, an adjunct professor. I do a motivational, you know, I mention all these things. And then I'm like, all oh, these other projects I'm working on. And people are like, where do you find the time? And, and the truth is, I kind of had, I had one of those kind of uh, epiphany moments, I guess you can say when, when a couple of years, maybe after law school, where I, you know, I was working at a job nine to five and everything was kind of automatic. Like I wasn't putting in a whole lot of effort, right. got out of work. I would be sitting at the couch from like six o'clock until I went to sleep at like midnight. And then it was just repeat, you know, the same the next day. And then one day I kind of said to myself, like, I feel like there's so much more that I could do. And I looked at time differently at that point. Right. And so instead of looking at it as like, oh, I have all this time to kill, it was now, wow, I have all this time that I can actually start doing other things. Mm -hmm. 
So it's, I didn't figure out a 25th hour to the day. I didn't figure out an eighth day of the week. Right, right, what right. I just try to do is I try to maximize all my time and kind of allocate and look at things differently. Because as much as I can sit down and say, and I'm like at my desk now, so I have like all this stuff that I'm working on, mm-hmm. I also find time to play PlayStation with my sons, right? I also find time to play pool. I also find time to like ride my motorcycle or drive around in my car or meet up with some friends to smoke a cigar. Like I find time for that because that, by doing that, that also allows me to come back to work and and do my work better and not feel burnt out and always have a fresh set of eyes, you know? Right. No, that's excellent. Yeah. um, I'm glad you found more or less like a sweet spot in your schedule or and you, you, you've changed your frame of mind on time management. That's really a good point because, yeah, I mean, even for me, just turning off notification on my phone is a huge deal. The only one I didn't turn off was the personal one where, you know, Chloe's daycare. But now that, you know, we're all, we're all at the house, I mean. Of course. Now it's just, you know, because, you know, clients can have expectations respond so quickly. Yeah. And, but, you know, as long as those solo practitioners, you set a policy for yourself within 24 or two days to respond and you tell clients that, you know, then it'll work out. So you don't feel as as stressed. Absolutely. And we we get so, honestly, I think that we've all been spoiled with these cell phones because everything is instant now, right? Like if I, if, and and it's kind of crazy when you sit down and think about it, if I were to send you a text and you don't respond within five minutes, I'm like, what's wrong? Is he mad at me? Like what's going on? And it's like five minutes have passed. Yeah. It's a, it's just a natural reaction now because we've been, accustomed to it recently exactly. yeah i mean if we're thinking that then imagine clients in, in a dire situation yeah i know i don't know about you in new york but now i'm thinking about it specifically there's been a couple of young attorneys who committed suicide i mean i don't know specific age but they seem like they're young lawyers so wow yeah, i mean it's the little time i can put in hopefully it'll you know turn a, turn someone's attention to something better you know what i mean yeah, and I and I think that that's that's part of um, part of what I I'm starting to, to speak more about, and I'm trying to encourage more speaking opportunities. Is that, you know, I think with the job market and everything that's going on, a lot of people are going to law school and they're thinking, well, now that I have this powerful degree, like getting a job should be like automatic, and unfortunately, it's not. But but they're also, you know, I consider next to a medical degree, I consider a JD to be the most powerful degree that you can get. And it opens up so many doors for you to pretty much do almost anything outside of practicing medicine, right? And so having people kind of explore that, you know, maybe your goal, like at graduating law school, I didn't practice for the first like few years of uh, after getting out because I was doing a lot of advocacy work, but I was getting those positions that were assigned for like licensed clinical social workers and stuff like that. But I was getting them with based on my degree. And then that's when I was like, okay, time to practice. Because once I went on my own, I was like, let's flip the switch. Right. So I think people just have to understand that you can go to law school and you can do a lot of different things. And your law degree is going to be, provided you don't do anything crazy, no one can ever take your education away from you. So pace yourself and, 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 and pace your, your expectations. You're not going to come out a partner in a law firm making seven figures within the first six months. Like It doesn't happen that right. way. Yeah, you mentioned I've had that similar situation at those elementary schools. I received that same exact question, how much money you make? I'm like, it depends on practice area and mm-hmm. your work-life balance for sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the mentality that people generally have is that mm-hmm. they just want to make a bunch of money. And of course, obviously pay off debt, but yeah, 
you know, um, that definitely creates more stress. Um, well, I, I'm looking if you want to work, I, I tell, I tell students all the time. I'm like, listen, if you really want to make an insane amount of money, yeah, be prepared to give up a social life, get prepared to give up the idea of getting married, get prepared to give up the idea of having kids or hanging out with your friends, get a beautiful corporate job. You can work your 80 to hundred hours a week and you'll make right. an insane amount of money because really what you're doing is you're working two full-time jobs, right? So you right, can do yeah. that, you get all the money in the world, make sure you take care of your health so you don't drop dead from a heart attack from not eating or sleeping properly. And, uh, and then you'll make a ton of money. And if you're happy with that, then I think that's fantastic. Go for it. But not me. That, that does not sound enticing to me. <laughs> no, Chloe not. or Tao would not have anything of that. <laughs> no, listen, it's, it's some people are, they're cool with it and that's yeah. what they want to do. And that's fantastic. I'm one of those, I'm one of those people where it's like, even the idea of saying, well, let me do it for like three years and then figure it out. Who knows what can happen in three years? Oh yeah. So much changes. That's it, man. I live, I have, I get to do my work and I get to have so much fun every single day. And it's like, because tomorrow's not guaranteed. And if, it, if I did nothing but work from nine in the morning to nine at night, and then God forbid something happened tomorrow and I didn't get a chance to hang out with Liz or the kids or anything like that, it's kind of yeah. like, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah. You can't take it with you, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, critical right there. I mean, if you look at it that way, that's, that's, that's very profound there, Richard. But, you know, Richard, thank you so much for your time. We, we could have so much to talk about. We could probably span three hours at least without going to client deep stories. But uh, we'd love to have you back. Definitely. And um, maybe by then you have another book or you've expanded your Young Debaters program. And hope we, uh, we'll, we'll add a link in the description for folks that are interested to learn about it. Maybe you'll get some people to log into your webinars there. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate this and a uh, great conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you, Richard. Thanks a lot, John. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like today's content in our interview, please subscribe below and hit the bell for our future notifications. We'll drop a video every Monday at 8 a.m. Talk to you soon.